everyone. I'm Betsy. And I'm Greg. And we want to invite you to check out our podcast, Going On 30. Each month, Betsy and I take a look back at a movie that was released 30 years ago that was either nominated or should have been nominated for Best Picture. We talk about the legacy of the film, choose the best scenes and performances, and explore our own hot takes about the movie. And we discuss the greatness of Tom Cruise, an actor oh, who has graced our screens for multiple decades, taking on some of the most artistically challenging pursuits while displaying what can only be described as an everyman relatability. An actor, nay, a thespian, who pushes oh. the boundaries of what the medium is capable of while revealing the humanity that's underlying. All right, all I'm of- done. I cannot, I cannot tolerate this anymore. So listen to Going on 30 every month right here on the Popping Collar Speed, wherever you get your podcast. I love you, Tom. Oh, jeez. I'm Greg Knight. Hey, I'm Ryan Parker. And this is PCTV, a popping collar side project where we randomly select current TV show that you should be streaming right now. Ryan and I have each picked six shows from the top streaming apps, including Netflix, Hulu, Disney Plus, Max, Rebrand, Drop the HBO. We're down to Max, Max. Prime Max. Video, and Apple TV. Do you Plus. like Max? That's right. That's right. Do you care? Does anybody care? I gotta say, when I first heard it, I was like, oh, they're it felt like they were leaning into the Cinemax side rather than the HBO side. The thing that's made them uh wagons full of money. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, it's it's uh we're talking about Max for a reason because that's the right. Show that we're discussing that's right, because this month currently streaming on Max. We are talking about the Max series, The Last of Us. If you don't think there's hope for the world, why bother going on? You haven't seen the world, so you don't know. Keep going for family. I'm not family. No. Your cargo. Why are you so important? Somewhere out west. They're working on a cure. I think what really impressed them was the fact that I didn't turn into a monster. If she so much as twitches, <laughs> don't. Okay. If I'm taking you with me, you do what I say when I say it. You got any advice on the best way west? Yeah, go east. You've come this far, then you know it's out there. You're not gonna scare us. You scared him? You have a greater purpose than any of us could have ever imagined. Be careful who you put your faith in. Her father, she was someone's. 
trust me. The Last of Us is based on the critically acclaimed uh, video game series for PlayStation. I've played both games. So there's Last of Us and The Last of Us Part Two. Mm-hmm. They are among some of the most compelling games ever made in their aesthetic and in their storytelling, which uh, is clearly on display here in this series. A series that is based on a, a brutally violent game in which yeah. you're as a as a character and you're controlling multiple characters over both games you're asked to make very hard decisions um and of course there are things where you're forced to make hard decisions because the game doesn't continue if you don't right you're frequently gunning down for lack of a better word zombies mm-hmm. uh, which were formerly you know sentient beings human beings who have now morphed into these strange fungi look like creatures. And also I should say the games are incredibly terrifying. Yeah. It's turn all the lights on play in the morning kind of thing for me anyway, because I just immerse myself in these games. All that to say, I don't think the series is any of that. Like the series is much quieter for a zombie show. There aren't a lot of zombies. Uh, I don't have a problem with that. And there are one or two departures from the uh, game that I think will, one of which we'll talk about in detail. Yeah. But I, I think what they've done here, and we won't spend the whole time comparing to the video game, but the seed of the video game is very much the relationship between Joel and Ellie. Right. And the, the series on Max just pumps that full of ster- steroids. Yeah, it has to because it has like seven hours to tell the yeah. story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of where we are logistically. That's what we're talking about. The, yeah, this exactly. Kind of show it an adaptation of a video game property. So let me do a little bit of table setting plot synopsis wise, which like all of our plot synopsis coming from IMDb is ridiculously sort of low. And I think you've filled in a lot of this. But uh, the description is this. After a global pandemic destroys civilization, a hardened survivor takes charge of a 14-year-old girl who may be humanity's last hope. So it's lone wolf and cub, right? I mean, that's what we're talking about here. Yeah. Good, it's good comparison. Yeah. If you've ever seen, if you've ever seen um, what? The Mandalorian. You know what we're talking about. <laughs> But also, it just happens to be adapted for television by Craig Mason, who Max fans, HBO fans, will know from Chernobyl. Yeah, absolutely. To sort of flesh this out a little bit more, it's a it's a road picture too. I mean, it's it's a road trip uh, game. So the way that the the video game is laid out, which I think you did a great job of uh, describing it is you know this post-apocalyptic world uh that they're surviving in but they have to move from boston to colorado or wyoming colorado like that yeah Yeah. out west 
so they've got to traverse the United States basically. And so you can almost tell how this goes, right? Like each chapter of the game is them moving, you know, ever more West. And that's kind of how the show works also, right? Like each episode of the show, they're moving further and further West and you get a glimpse of what the world is around them. So yeah, so it's a so it's a bit of a road trip. Uh, it's a bit of a zombie picture, and it's a bit of a you know a found family. What does it mean to be a parent, and uh, how does that work in a world that doesn't have any more rules? You talked about in in some of our prep, uh, and I may put you on the spot here and ask you why you think so. But this comes on the heels not too long after another post-apocalyptic pandemic series in station 11 mm-hmm. itself an adaptation of another work. And I want to ask you why you think you, you mentioned that you felt station 11 functioned better as a, as kind of a pandemic narrative. And I, I wonder why that is, but one of the things I do think that the last of us does uh, as entertainment and as kind of maybe real world commentary in the, Oh crap, this could this happen one day kind of thing is talking about climate change and the way uh, the way evolution works in terms of viruses and how they may begin to evolve beyond our ability to fight them. And that's one of the things that I liked about the series. And they don't they don't really spend a lot of time on this and kind of kind of beat that dead horse. It's it's really just a way of setting the table, as as you would say, of how this came about, of how this happened. And I think the first I think it's the first scenes of the first two episodes they don't do do it every episode but i thought those were particularly entertaining and Mm -hmm. chilling as well especially the one i believe it's in the philippines where the scientist says bomb the whole city you know it's on the eve of the outbreak what should we do how can we contain it she said bomb the whole city and so i thought that was kind of cool and then of course it throws us into the road trip with joel and ellie because there's a fast forward that happens and Yeah, all of that sort of God's eye view stuff, you know, the let's take a step back and, you know, look at this, look at this from uh, long range. That feels very much like Craig Mazin, Chernobyl stuff, right? Mankind has been at war with the virus from the start. Sometimes millions of people die as in an actual war, but in the end, we always win. Uh, But uh, just to be clear, you, you do think microorganisms pose a threat? Oh, in the most dire terms. Bacteria? No. You like saying no? Yes. <laughs> not bacteria, not viruses, so fungus. <laughs> yes, that's the usual response. Fungi seem harmless enough. Many species know otherwise because there are some fungi who seek not to kill, but to control. Let me ask you, where do we get LSD from? Where do you get it from? <laughs> it comes from ergot, a fungus, psilocybin. Also a fungus. Viruses can make us ill, but fungi can alter our very minds. There's a fungus that infects insects, gets inside an ant, for example, travels through its circulatory system to the ant's brain and then floods it with hallucinogens, thus bending the ant's mind to its will. Fungus starts to direct the ant's behavior, telling it where to go, what to do, like a puppeteer with a marionette. And it gets worse. The fungus needs food to live, so it begins to devour its host from within, replacing the ant's flesh with its own. But it doesn't let its victim die, no. It it keeps its puppet alive by preventing decomposition. How? 
Where do we get penicillin from? Fungus. Oh. Dr. Schoenheist, you're in distress. Fungal infection of this kind is real, but not in humans. True, fungi cannot survive if its host's internal temperature is over 94 degrees. And currently, there are no reasons for fungi to evolve to be able to withstand higher temperatures. But what if that were to change? What if, for instance, the world were to get slightly warmer? Well, now, there is reason to evolve. One gene mutates, and an ascomycetia, candida, ergot, cordyceps, aspergillus, any one of them could become capable of burrowing into our brains and taking control, not of millions of us, but billions of us. Billions of puppets with poisoned minds, permanently fixed on one unifying goal, to spread the infection to every last human alive by any means necessary. And there are no treatments for this, no preventatives, no cures. They don't exist. It's not even possible to make them. So if that happens, we lose. Like that feel like Good let's point. bring in yes. an expert to give us, you know, their opinion of what should happen. Oh, destroy it all because yeah. you've wrecked everything. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Got> <laughs> So why do you think Station Eleven works better? And I don't think you're necessarily saying, you know, saying this is a bad show. Oh no 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 no! This What's is a, uh, this is a great show. So I picked what, this show. Yeah, this yeah. is my this is my max pick for our uh, little enterprise here. And you know, the reason that I picked it is because it is a phenomenon. Like it is, it's a very well received show, which in itself is sort of an oddity in the video game genre. And we'll unpack that a little bit more later. But the reason that I think Station Eleven works better is because it has sort of similar themes, right? So it has a, a an orphaned child and a foster parent dynamic that's at the heart of it. The issue, though, in Station Eleven is that there's a separation that happens between the two of them and they have to come back together again at some point. And the payoff for that coming back together is just, it's, it's breathtaking the way that it happens on, uh, on that show. My issue with dystopian dramas is Mm. why would anybody live in this world? Like, that's always my first question is, and I get it. Like there's a biological, you know, um, need to like survive and stuff, but eventually like if your life is only survival and not thriving, you know, this is, this is not, a world to live in, right? This is this is the worst. And Station 11 does a better job than The Last of Us just because it's a totally different narrative of showing me a reason to live in a world that's suffered as much loss and grief and damage as the sort of dystopian worlds that we see. The Last of Us has one has one episode, which we're going to talk a lot about, that does show what it means for people to thrive in this world. But the rest of it is just, it's a little bleaker than I would hope to see. I think Um, Because I I just kind of need hope, I guess, is what I'm trying to get at. I I think that's a very fair question, especially, and, and comment, especially when we talk about hitting the reset button, which... Mm -hmm. 
maybe humanity needs to take a break for a while right. and let, let the earth heal or evolve or what have you. And I think you're right. I'm always, I'm, I always joke with people. I'm like, would we rush to cannibalism that quickly? <laughs> like, yeah. Do you know what I mean? It just, it's like, Oh, a, a year later we're eating each other, you know, maybe, right. I don't know, but I agree with you a hundred percent. And I, I haven't thought about it in quite that way. And your point about um, Station Eleven, it's achingly beautiful. And yeah. Even in its kind of dystopian atmosphere, it's there's something there's worth striving for. It feels like the the show's asking us to believe in that. You know, the best that we see maybe outside of the episode we want to talk about, you know, is that community at the end in Colorado that right. seems to have put the town back together, but. You know, it made me think of um, what it must feel like to exist in that world. Uh, there's a great book called, called A Canticle for Leibowitz. I don't know if you know this book. I think it's one of the greatest American novels ever written. Mm-hmm. And it's a post-apocalyptic narrative that takes place thousands of years after the inciting incident. And it focuses on this group of monks in the desert who are attempting to kindle the flame of civilization. Yeah, And they have a library and they have sacred orders. but their sacred orders are based off of an old shopping cart list, like an old grocery list, but they think there's some sort of mythology at work to it. Like, so what they're trying to do is recreate what once was like old TV sets are like planters now, like nothing is used as it was intended. Right. But you have this group of monks who the best that they could ever do is remake what once was. And I wonder if there's a little bit of that in The Last of Us, especially in that town in Colorado where, you know, it's just a pale imitation of like a thriving city. The only reason that I'm comparing Station Eleven to The Last of Us is that these are two dystopian shows that HBO released kind of back to back. That's the only thing that they really have in common. Right. Yeah. But, you know, it, it feels like the world of The Last of Us is so far away from having a traveling Shakespearean play sort of coming through town. And I, I would rather see the dystopia where we're trying to reclaim our art and our ability to like, you know, to do plays for each other and to make art for each other and to rebuild what makes being a human being important. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about adaptations just really quickly, because yeah. I think that the, I think this is a key point for me when I think about this show and when I think about Station Eleven. So um, so just one last comment on Station Eleven um, now, which is to say that when that show was adapted for HBO, they changed the book they they changed a lot of aspects of the book they take they took the basic structure of the story but like for instance they had characters that reconnected um and i mentioned it already like you know jeevan and kirsten reconnecting at the end of the tv show that doesn't happen in the book like jeevan gets her out of chicago but then they never see each other again yeah. Um, and so, you know, the beauty of that sort of reunion, I thought was necessary for the television show. Like, so what if it's not in the book? The show kind of dictates that it needs to happen. And so I'm glad that the creators made it happen, right? 
Similarly, uh, The Last of Us, it really does hit a lot of the major beats of the video game with one clear, just absolute clear diversion, in my opinion, which is the Frank and Bill story, which plays out a lot more cynical, I think, in the game and um, barely really warrants a whole lot of talking about. And yet this television show devotes an entire episode and an extended episode to what it means to find love at the end of the world. And I think that that's, it's such a departure, but it's just a necessary departure for you to buy into the show, I think. That that episode feels like so far and above everything else in the series. Yeah. That it's almost like it's from a different series. And I think you're right about how do you find love when you're worried that that person, that stranger through the coming through the gate wants to eat you or mm-hmm. steal from you. And uh, as two of the better performances, would you think um, guest star uh, supporting actor nominees, you know, and the next Emmys, I don't know what else to say about it that a lot of people probably haven't already said. It's, yeah. it's beautiful. I mean, it's tender and it's sweet and it's funny and it's hopeful. And I don't know. I watched it and you think, well, what a life, you know, right. like what a, what a life, like, and it's rare that you get to have that kind of reaction to a, a, a single episode of a series. And the other thing that it does, which I really appreciate too, as far as this idea of adaptation is that it plays with your familiarity with the actors themselves, right? So like it plays off of the understanding that you see Nick Offerman and you think of Ron Swanson. And so you think you know who this character is and it's not that. It's something else, right? It has a little bit of that but it's a wholly different person. And the same thing with Murray Bartlett. It plays off of this idea of like, I mean, you would have just seen him in the white Lotus. And so this idea of like pulling these ideas that you have of these guest actors and then switching them around and mixing them up and creating like this amazing sort of relationship, but also this sort of mini world in the space of the entire show I just think that's amazing. It, it's just it it it's really good adaptation. That's what I'm. That's what I think I'm trying to sort of stress with this show is that to adapt something doesn't mean to do panel by panel exactly what the source material says. To adapt something is to take the spirit of it and to tell maybe a different story, but something that gets at the heart of what the original thing was trying to say but maybe saying it in a different way, right? Maybe like saying it Yeah, I appreciate that. And I think you're, um, I'm trying to remember watching it, you know, because I watched it week by week, thinking, oh, what else are they going to do? And they do they do this to a bit, right? Because I think it's a departure from the game when Ellie and her friend uh, Riley mm-hmm. go to the mall. Yeah. So that's like downloadable content. So not in the original game, but you could download that yeah. part of the story. So, you know, I thought that was quite good, but it had me thinking, okay, who else will they do this with? And they really don't. I mean, they continue the journey westward, as you mentioned earlier, that kind of sticks to the structure of the of the game. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, the episode, you know, it's 
when you think about Nick Offerman, if you've read any of his work or just know anything about him as a person, I mean, he is someone with a great love of the outdoors and a bit of a craftsman in his own right. So to watch him in the setting to try to, you know, make a light, make a way out of no way, you know, <laughs> in a sense, there, there are these layers to it, as as you've pointed out, that it just it's so effective. Yeah, I also I love that it comes in episode three of the show because um, it helps frame for us as the audience, because, you know, at this point, you know, Ellie and Joel really don't have much of a relationship and we don't really understand what their relationship is. But by structuring this episode the way that it is and by taking us away from our main characters for just a second, what it shows us is that it's possible for the people that we're following on the show, it's possible for them to have love for each other as well. Obviously not the same kind of love that Frank and Bill have for each other, but they can learn how to be like a father and a daughter uh, as yes. they make it across, uh, you know, America here. And yeah. I think that that's like, giving us a glimpse that you know what these human relationships that we've come to depend on for millennia are still possible even when everything is broken down i think it's i think it's helpful to show that early on in the series because you're going to have to go through the valley of death to get to that relationship you know by the end of the show you've got me thinking about this concept of relationships of kind of traditional family ties versus blended or alternate ties, right? Like uh, Joel and Ellie have a bond. Joel and Tommy can't stay together, right? And they're brothers. Yeah. It's the same thing with anybody in, you know, the camp and is it is Philly, right? At the start. Uh, Boston. Boston, Boston, excuse me. It's the same with the camp in Boston and the dysfunction you see there. And it just, it's interesting to me that, maybe it's the reality that when everything falls apart, you kind of get to choose who you want to be family with. Like yeah. Joel and Tess are lovers, but they can't even admit to themselves like what their relationship is to each other. Like, yeah. It's like they're intimate with each other, but they're cold to each other at the same time. It's almost like they, like they can't grasp like what the concept is anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, meanwhile, on the other hand, you have Bill and Frank who, can yeah who fall in love yeah are warm yeah with each other yeah yeah it's just again like i that episode it's a masterpiece i think i think there's there's nothing that we can really say that you know um would give it all the superlatives that it deserves um you could tell, other, you could in, in, in relationship counseling you could be like just watch this show Here's yeah one <laughs> session of marriage therapy or premarital counseling just watch this episode Right, yeah, and but to be in relationship with this is what this is what long term commitment looks like. Yeah, this you is living life is, together. Yeah, you have to communicate book, with each eat, other. Eat some fruit, communicate. Yeah, in fact, <laughs> right. it just I've got a I've got an officiated a wedding this summer, and I think I'm going to text the couple now and say <laughs> if you, which I know they watched it, so they're they're big yeah. So speaking of the Frank and Bill episode, what is your best scene sequence episode or storyline from the show? I mean, I think that episode, and then I want to go back to the sequence and just reiterate that kind of opening, as you as you pointed out, uh, uh, Craig's uh, God's eye view of how this yeah. has come to be. 
so chilling. And I just yep. thought it set a great tone for the whole series in that way. Um, so, yeah, I mean, episode three, but scene or sequence may have been may have been that one. And then maybe when um, Ellie goes ham on that corrupt preacher yeah. man. Yeah. Um, yeah. What about you? Um, I So for me, I think it's Frank and Bill's last moments. Right. It's it's that it's that hour of last things that they have together, which, you know, as someone who um, has, you know, lost loved ones. um, And I think a lot of us um, understand having just come through covid and just the experience of grief and loss that so many families around the country have experienced over the last few years, like this idea to be able to send someone off in a loving and respectful way that's just it's a luxury that is rarely afforded to most people yeah, didn't it yeah it's uh and when you see it happen it is just so lovely because it's just it's a life well lived you know and you just you close your eyes and you go to sleep and you never wake up again and it's just amazing it's what you would wish everyone could experience as their last it's their last moments, yeah. Why are there already pills in the bottle? Enough to kill a horse. This isn't the tragic suicide at the end of the play. I'm old. I'm satisfied. And you were my purpose. support this I should be furious but from an objective point of view it's incredibly romantic I totally agree with you though about the cold open especially to the first episode where i'm just like screaming at my tv i'm like dude the guy from the mummy is like scaring the hell out of me with this, <laughs> this mushroom talk man what is this are they they're taking over they're evolving like it's the way he says it just so matter of factly like you know it like there's nothing you can do like it's over yeah. you know and, and it's just like it's it's that sort of i mean we call it a cold open but it's also a cold reminder that like the universe owes us nothing you know like a, like a gamma a gamma yet. wave yeah. that started deep in space just washes over the earth and everything is dead you know and it's just, we can't anticipate it. We can't see it. We can't predict that it could happen. You know, it's just, it's like anything can happen at any moment. And it's just, it really, it really helps you to appreciate that, like, we are living by nothing. grace. We're nothing. <laughs> I, I don't do this much anymore, but I, after that scene, I ran, wherever Amy was in the house, I like physically grabbed her and put her on the couch and was like, Watch this first five minutes. <laughs> yeah. It's so good. Yeah. Um, best performance? 
for me, best performance is hands down Melanie Linsky in this, uh, who you probably know from Yellow Jackets, which she's on right now. She was also in the Leonardo DiCaprio movie, uh, Don't Look Up. Uh, she was also in Togetherness on HBO. I mean, she's like one of these character actors that if you just need like a, a normal looking person who's also a phenomenal actor, like this, Melanie Linsky is who you get, right? And so I would, she... I would watch her read the phone book. Oh my God, she's amazing. She's, she's beautiful. She's insanely talented. Yeah. I bet, she's, I bet she's so fun and funny. Like, oh, absolutely. In real life, but she often plays these very complex, how dark is the wrong word, but... She doesn't get a lot of straight comedy. Yeah. Um, I mean, she she does get cast in like the housewife role a lot. A lot. Um, But anyway, so in this show, she plays this woman who, you know, who's good at one thing, which is setting things right in her town. (laughs) And she, you know, we keep talking about the coldness of the show, but she, she does it in just such a cold and methodical way that it's chilling and it's not personal for her necessarily. Um, although towards the end, it does kind of feel personal because it's about her brother and stuff, but it's almost as if like the chair of the PTA just became like the head of a rebellion army, you know, it's like, or like, or like, uh, you know, what's a, what's a like Blackwater or something. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's some like a military group. It's like, what skills did this person show in their regular life before all of this happened? Because yeah. she seems like, you know, a, a an iron fisted despotic leader, you know, of Kansas City. And yet, like, what, um, tw- 20 years before that, she was probably just, you know, just on the PTA or something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just Making hard cookies. to... Yeah. It's hard to anticipate, yeah. I wonder if this is the cell where my brother was beaten to death. Oh, you were wronged. And I'm sorry. But this has gone too far. It has to stop. It has to stop now, you mean? Now that you're in the cell. But before, people dying was okay. When you were safe and protected and ratting on your neighbors to Fedra. They put a gun to my head. Here. Have I satisfied the necessary conditions for you to talk? Tell me, for God's sake. I delivered you. I held you in my hands. I never told them anything about your brother. Henry did. And we know that he's still in the city. And I think that you know that too. Where is he? You think I won't do it? She's great in everything she does. If you're not watching Yellow Jackets, I've not started season two, but season one is fantastic. Um, I, I I agree with you. There's not a whole lot to add there. I would yeah. say I like. I mean, Pedro Pascal, Bella Ramsey, Joel, and Ellie. 
mm-hmm. are good. Pedro is kind of playing Pedro. I mean, is he the Mandalorian or is he Joel? It's kind of yeah similar, but he's very good. He's easy on the eyes. Bella Ramsey, I, I think that was, don't you think that was maybe more difficult for the casting director and the producers to find someone to kind of capture this role? I would think maybe it's difficult for her as well because she's got the only, I mean, the only other thing is, is this beautiful character and this relationship that she has with Joel, but she's up against a, a CGI character who who's also the voice acting in that role is very good. Yeah. That's why the game's so good is that the performances that those actors give um, are better than, you know, 99% of all games ever made, you know? Well, like yeah. I mean, Ashley Johnson is phenomenal, especially in part two, last of us part yeah. two. She's just incredible. Yeah. So, um, anyway, that's, that's kind of like honorable mention to Bella Ramsey for yeah her, her uh, performance as well. I mean, my thing with, my thing with Bella Ramsey and Pedro Pascal is that, you know, we talk about, yeah, I mean, they're, they're sticking to the, to the beats of the game, but you know, it's the game like on fast forward. I mean, it is, it is the game like cruising at like, you know, like a speed run kind of pace. Right. So the ability to get, the emotion, I mean, the thing about the game is that you can build up the emotion between these two characters for a long time. I mean, you can be 10 hours in, you know, and you un, you fully sort of flesh out the relationship between Joel and Ellie. Here you have seven episodes, one episode that you're not, that's taken away from you with the Bill and Frank story. So you have six episodes. The first episode, they only meet at the end. So now you have five episodes. To to sync up this relationship and to get it where it needs to be in order for the climax to have the impact that it needs to have, and that's um that's a tall order. It's a tall task, and um and I think they did a good job of it. Is this really all they had to worry about? Boys, movies, deciding which shirt goes with which skirt. It's bizarre. Listen, uh, Why are you here? I came here to talk to you. No, why are you still here? If you're gonna ditch me, ditch me. What exactly did you hear? I have to leave her, you have to take her. You know, I stood up for you today because I thought... I made this decision for your own good. You'll be way better off with Tommy. He knows the area better than I do. Do you give a shit about me or not? Of course I do. Then what are you so afraid of? I'm not her, you know. Maria told me about Sarah and... No. Don't say another word. Sorry about your daughter, Joel. But I have lost people too. You have no idea what loss is. Everybody I have cared for has either died or left me. Everybody except for you. So don't tell me that I'd be safe with somebody else because the truth is I would just be more scared. 
Uh, let's talk about some big ideas. I've got theology corner, which we kind of talked about a little bit already, because that mm-hmm. was where I, ha- I put in a lot of my Station Eleven. Um, well, and also what you just said about um, just our existence on this planet. Yeah, it's not. Uh, what what does divine favor look like in that? Yeah, I mean uh, your tomorrows insane. are not guaranteed. Yeah. yeah. At the heart of this show, though, which differentiates it from Station Eleven, is this idea of what is the cost of love, right? So Craig Mazin has said in interviews that, you know, his whole thing is the damage that love can do. And whenever he would talk about the concept of love, it was never like roses and rainbows and unicorns and beautiful things. It was always about, like, cost and punishment and sacrifice. And so it's about Joel's love for his daughter at the very beginning of the pandemic or the the outbreak and the fall of civilization and then Joel's love for uh for Ellie at the end of the show. And what does that love cost? Like what does that first love cost Joel? And then what does his second love of Ellie cost the world, right? Mm -hmm. And it's just like, it's all sort of bound up in this idea that love can make things harder (laughs) sometimes, a lot of times, right? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, that that need, I like your note about the needs of the many versus needs of the few, because that works at almost every episode where, I mean, you think about how, in each each case, it's people working for the needs of the many. Something happens, and they become obsessed with the the few or the one. Mm-hmm. In the case, maybe it's Joel and Ellie, or with um, Kathleen, it's the community. But then it's about justice for her brother, mm-hmm. which is getting way out of hand. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing with Tommy, and why Tommy can't go with Joel, right? Because right. it's the the community, right? They've got a good thing going. I can't sacrifice that for this. He's got a family. I mean, that's thing. He's got a family. She's, and then, you know, in the course of most prominently, Joel's decision to quote unquote, save Ellie at the end. And yeah, so I think that that works. And there are other ways that it probably is fleshed out that I'm forgetting, but um, yeah. Well, and that idea, and this is, I don't know. I'll do moderate spoilers. So moderate spoilers for The Last of Us Part 2 is to say that that cost of love, ultimately, it gets worse. Right? <laughs> it doesn't get better. Um, because because it, it's, a, it's a love that eventually leads a character to adopt vengeance, right? So like what we were talking about with Kathleen, like her love for her brother made her become this vengeful agent of destruction, like this sort of like, (laughs) you know, Castro-esque figure who overthrows the oppressor only to become another type of oppressor. And what eventually happens with Ellie and Joel is that because of Joel's decision, Ellie is going to have to make very hard choices going forward. And you see how love can ultimately become vengeance, which Mm -hmm. is the dark side of that. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I, this is bouncing around a little bit, but when he makes the choice to save her in the series is when it really feels most like a video game. Yeah. Because he goes ham on everybody in that hospital. Yeah. Um, by the way, it feels like you're playing it. Yeah. By the way, that's a really hard part of the game. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's like so oh, I'm, hard. Yeah. That took me hours. <laughs> Yeah, I had forgotten that. And I have uh I have nightmares of those um hospital curtains. Oh my god. Trying to hide behind those hospital curtains and you have like you have like a, a hit box that's like microscopic that you're yeah. just like aim. Oh my gosh, it's just so yeah, it's difficult. But no, I, I I love this idea of like, you know, just to pull back some theology here where where does this stuff get you and what do these decisions ultimately lead to and the phrase that's going through my head as we've come through holy week and easter here recently as we're recording this is you know forgive them they know not what they do right i mean at some point you've got to forgive joel for his decision because he doesn't know what he's doing because he's blinded by the love of his lost child mm. in order to claim his new child and it's yeah. yeah it's blindness yeah yeah uh let's talk a little industry just real quick we've already discussed a lot to discuss yeah i don't want to go through the branding of the rebranding of max we've we've already kind of picked apart like hbo's identity the last time that we talked about an HBO show, but, um, but I am curious about this idea of video game IP kind of moving forward. So, so far this year, and as you've mentioned already, like it's, you know, it's a fairly young year, although I think this episode comes out in June. So I think it's like halfway through the year. We have two just ginormous video game property pop culture hits, which are Mm -hmm. the last of us on HBO and the super Mario brothers movie. Uh, in Which will probably still be in theaters in June. Right. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's just going to make, I mean, every 8 to 12-year-old in the country is just seeing that movie over and over again on a loop. Like, it is nuts. I'm ready um, to see it. I am uh, I know it's not for me, but nostalgia, you know? Yeah, I mean, go figure. I love Mario, all things Mario. So, I mean, go figure. You make a movie for kids and kids and parents buy tickets to movies. It's amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's almost as if like this is the model that Hollywood had forever and they forgot about it. <laughs> it's just incredible. Um, so what is the state of video game IP? Should Very we strong. I mean for the longest time this was a joke? Like yeah. these movies were jokes. Yes. Resident Evil, uh, the original Super Mario Brothers movie, like all of these things were terrible. And now we have two massive hits and a declining superhero genre. So does that mean that we've got more video game properties in our future? Yes. And (laughs) I am scrolling through a uh, time article at the moment that, that lists at least 20 quote unquote, highly anticipated video game adaptations, a couple of which I knew about and a couple of which I didn't. And you know, look, this makes sense. Video games are massively popular. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just like, and to me, it's like, in some cases, it's like literature. You have a built-in audience. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you're adapting the story. You have a lot of the uh, heavy lifting's already been done for you in terms of special effects and seeing how it would look on the screen potentially. Um, the question, I think the this, the better question, which you've asked already, is for what reason are you adapting this, or right. and what what have you found in this story uh, or in that game that would make a good story written in a different way, told in a different way. Some of these, I think, are going to work better than others. Uh, you know, the one that I knew about for a minute was God of War. Uh, mm-hmm. Amazon Prime's ordered that to series, which um, could be exciting. I mean, the, the premise there of, you know, a, a man fighting the gods is, mm-hmm. you know, give me the popcorn. Horizon Zero Dawn, another uh, post-apocalyptic dystopian set uh, narrative on Netflix. Um, I'm going to skip over a couple. Tomb Raider, Assassin's Creed on Netflix, Bioshock on Netflix. Um, one that I was surprised by, or uh, and also very excited by, the hope is that, it, look, some of these could just be in development. Some could never see the light of day. But one of the games that I've enjoyed the most in the last year is a, a cooperative game called It Takes Two. Mm. which is, exists across um, most platforms, I think. Um, and the cooperative gameplay is baked into the narrative. You cannot play the game unless you have a partner to play it with you. It's not like this tacked-on thing to a single-player adventure game. Uh, it's kind of like Honey, I Shrunk the Parents instead of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. <laughs> and to get back to the real world and to save their marriage uh, and rescue their daughter, this couple is shrunk down to doll size and must undertake all these challenges together and them communicating with and working together effectively mm-hmm. is integral to the game. And so anyway, uh, there, it could make for a, a great action comedy, action adventure comedy that looks like maybe Amazon prime, but there's only a handful of games that I would get excited about seeing an adaptation. Some of these yeah. that I'm looking through on the list and yeah, take it or leave it. But I think, think to your point the success of the last of us and then the box office bonanza that is super mario brothers they may be here to stay i don't mind a video game fad coming in i mean honestly like i'd watch a castlevania movie i'm okay with that you know like (laughs) a great anime series on netflix by the way (laughs) exactly i mean I, i will i will say this the video games themselves have gotten increasingly more and more cinematic. So the mm-hmm. last of us made sense as a television show because it was already like storyboarded for you on the video game. I mean, yeah, you True. Just yep. Good point. translate one to the other. Now I know that the Tom Holland uncharted effort that came out earlier this year did not do well, but you know, like the things that you listed Bioshock, I'm thinking of things like Mass Effect and stuff like that. These are really story plot driven games. And it's just, they seem like no brainers. But then also, you know, just thinking of the Mario end of things, you know, putting a space marine on a planet full of Metroids seems like that's a no brainer of a movie concept, too. I mean, that's, yeah. that's already a proven concept with Alien. So it's yeah, like. Exactly. I, I just like it it seems like yes um I think that video games are here to stay I think the question is going to be what's the quality of these types of movies going to be and are we going to see 
up and coming directors like the Ryan Kuglers of the world and the Taika Waititi's and stuff like that making these types of movies the way that they made Marvel movies, you know, leading up yeah. to this. Well, I think you're right. It's another thing to consider what is of value in each of these games. So you talked about The Last of Us being very cinematic in nature, but the story itself being deeply emotional and um, resonant. But then you think about games like I like what you say about Bioshock. I would put Horizon Zero Dawn in there, even though I didn't play a ton of it. But these are worlds that I want to explore more. Mm -hmm. Like I want to see more of these weird animal machine hybrids in Horizon Zero Dawn. I want to understand better kind of the, you know, fascist world of Bioshock. Right. And how it came to be and what life is like in it, you know. So, yeah, asking those questions of what what is, what are the elements of value in these that we want to flesh out, you know, and yeah. approaching these. So there you go, folks. Settle in. Uh, the top 10 uh, box office uh, highest grossing movies of 2025 are going to be Zelda, Metroid, Castlevania, <laughs> Bioshock. Well, as we record this, I am counting down the days until um, Tears of the Kingdom. <laughs> That's like a direct sequel. Zelda rarely does a direct sequel like that. I think Majora's I Mask is like the last I know. one. Yeah. All right, Ryan, I could geek out on games for the rest of the night, but I should probably yep. get to bed at some point. So let's spin the wheel, see what our next show is. Spinning the wheel of death. <laughs> That's right. Oh, wait, the wheel of TV. Sorry. I'm going to solve. All right. Corno curl cabinet. Uh, okay, Ryan, it's one of yours. Are you ready? Uh, yes. The wheel has opted for your Amazon Prime pick, The Boys. For oh, Amazon Prime. I don't know if the audience is ready for this one, buddy. Have you seen it? <laughs> I I am caught up on The Boys. I am caught okay. up. I don't know how we're going to get into that, but we're going to get into it. Well, my question for you is this. NSFW. NSFW. Yeah, exactly. My question for you is this. Do you want to keep the boys or do you want to change to something else that's also on Amazon? Um, I would have to think about that. I don't right. know. I mean, what's on Amazon right now that the fact uh, that I've I don't that know. Is... Lord of the Rings nonsense or something. Nope. Yeah, I would say let's stick with the boys because uh, because I think that's actually the best thing that Amazon has going. I think they've tapped into the best satire show on television. Yeah, because it's um, playing off of what you talk about in almost every episode. <laughs> the the uh, gluttony of uh, super corporate movies, greed, superhero movies, and corporate greed and <laughs> manipulation and exploitation and oh goodness, <laughs> and it is also bloody disgusting. Oh, it is bloody disgusting uh, in a very sort of uh, cynical, in a wholesome way. way. Yeah. <laughs> it's what would happen it's what would happen if superheroes really existed yeah yeah and they were owned by disney yeah wow. all right ryan so we will see you for the boys next time uh in the meantime thanks Cannot for wait. uh thanks for navigating the world of the last of us with me i'm glad that we safely made it uh to colorado and um had no problems along the way yeah. i don't know Got to hang out with the giraffes <laughs> yeah exactly uh, we will see you next time. Thanks. Thanks.